Mark chapter 12. And uh, I mentioned on Sunday I was beginning a series which I would do just as a continuation with each service. It will carry us through Sunday evening. And uh, dealing with Jesus' temple teachings, not just, not just teachings about the temple, which He does in this, but uh, when He was at the temple, He was teaching, and we see these things with it. But Mark chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 13, and tonight as I'm going through, I'll be explaining things as I go. hope you'll pay careful attention for your own good. Of course, you don't want to be distracting ever. It's a serious thing to draw people's minds away from the Word of God. And not everyone has the same ability to kind of block out when someone else is disturbing in the service. Uh, rustling of papers, leaning over, that kind of stuff, and little stuff like that can actually take people's minds away. And uh, so let's be careful of that. It's always appropriate for amens and uh, agreements of that type. In fact, a healthy church has more and more of that. And so, um, amen means I agree with that. God's people are, it's not just a, it's not a cultural thing within churches. It's actually biblical um, that when the Word of God's opened up, clearly the God's people give their agreement to it with amen. I mean, you amen every other word that comes out, but uh, that amen, it's an agreement with it. And it, it goes to help strengthen people around you and it also helps to convince someone who's coming in and trying to learn the things of God. So in Mark chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 13, and tonight's part of the temple teachings is this, questions and what they reveal. You're going to see um, the uh, Pharisees and the Herodians coming to Jesus. Then you're going to go down to another group called the Sadducees. And then at last, there's a scribe who will talk to Jesus. He's different than all the others in his approach and what he does. But the questions reveal things about those who are asking the questions. Also, the Lord used the questions to reveal things about Himself. On Sunday, we dealt with the fact that they had come to Jesus and uh, demanded of Him by what authority. We dealt with authority and ownership. And demanded by what authority... He was doing the things he had done. He had cleared out the temple and ran out the money changers and kicked over their tables, made a scourge, which is a type of whip, and ran them out. And they said, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? And we talked about those things, the authority that Christ has, and dealt with that some. Now, a continuation of that, it begins in verse 13 there, so let's look at that together. Notice it says, and they... Send unto him, that's Jesus, certain of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, when I see a pronoun like they, I'm like, okay, what's the antecedent of that? In other words, what is it modifying or who is it modifying when it's there? I'll show you who it's modifying. Look back at the beginning of 12 and uh, look back to, to do, let me find the exact verse I want to give you here. And well, actually, I think in 11, start, yeah, start in, in chapter 11 in verse 27. And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, and the they there is very obviously he and his disciples, if you read before that. There come to him, look at who came to him. These were the ones who were asking about John's baptism and such. The chief priest, and, and please remember, 
These priests also had civil power. They were, they, they were the governing body underneath the Romans. The Romans had power over them because they were, they were under Roman occupation. But they had civil authority. So it wasn't just a religious leader. These people also had a civil authority in it like a policeman or something would have. And so the chief priest, notice they were there, and the elders, or and the scribes, and the elders. That was the group that came to him and asked him about John the Baptist. Then, this verse 13, they had come and run up against Christ. And, and uh, he, said, uh, he said, you answer one question for me and I'll answer your question. Because they said, uh, they were asking Jesus why he did what he did, what authority. And he said, you answer me one question and I'll answer your question. He said the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it of men? And then they, they were afraid of the people. Like all I told you, all tyrants, both religious and political, are afraid of the people. Mark it down, they are. And, and so he, uh, uh, they, they wouldn't answer him. And he said, I won't answer you either. Now that same group, those rulers, are sending someone else on their behalf. Let's see who they send to start with, okay? Look in verse 13 again. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. I hope if you're in the habit of marking your Bibles, you'd mark that thing to catch him in his words. I have written in the side life. You look, this, especially this section of the Bible, I have a lot of writing in there, a lot of different things I've seen. But I wrote a note, what a sad reason to come to Jesus. They want to trip him up. They want to try to disprove him. I've told you before about a young lady who sat right exactly where Miss Francis is tonight. And uh, she was writing quite a bit while I was preaching. Looked, she was taking notes. I thought she was taking notes on the message. Didn't know who she was. Our folks didn't know her. She'd sat down and uh, she was over there, teenage girl, and she was writing. And I was preaching along, maybe it would have been a text like this, and I said, wouldn't that be something? Hearing Jesus teach and doing nothing but coming, trying to catch him in his words. I said, that'd be like somebody coming in here and hearing a good, clear gospel message, but just coming in trying to criticize or find trouble about it instead of hearing the word of God. I said that and I happened to just notice she quit writing and looked at me. She literally stayed transfixed like that for the rest of the message. And I thought, don't know what just happened, but something did apparently. Well, then. Well, her people talked to her. And they asked, she was a self-professed Wiccan, which is witchcraft. By the way, that's satanic. There's no such thing as white witchcraft. It's all satanic. And she was self-professed in that. And she literally had come into a, a Baptist church. I don't know if someone had witnessed her. She got one of the tracks, just saw the sign or what. And she was literally taking notes on things that she thought then she could dispute or something like that. And I guess she figured whenever... Uh, Whenever I said what I said so declaratively that maybe there was another spirit at work that she wasn't familiar with. And she was right. It was. Kind of amazing with that. Strange things have happened around here. But isn't that amazing? I had another one. Another young Satanist came in once and stood up. He was over where you are, Andrew. Stood up and challenged me right in the middle of the service. I had no idea what he was until he did it. I had another one come in back here where you're sitting, Ed. And he... Uh, he, he about went crazy during the service. That was during conference with it. That can go on with these things going on. And when it gets loose on you, just watch out. That's all I can tell you. And uh, so they went to catch his words. What kind of spirit would do that? That's not the spirit of God. There's a big difference between going 
and keeping your reasoning alive. God likes that. Keeping your mind, you know, working and paying attention and, and listening. God likes that. There's a difference between that and coming to catch Jesus in his words or criticize that sort of thing. That's just not of God. And so he went on with it. Look what happens. And when they were come, now, let me say one other thing here. You have the two groups here, the Pharisees and the Herodians. You say, well, what's that about? Pharisees are a group of the Jews. And uh, they were the strictest group of the Jews. They were fundamentally right in what they believed doctrinally on most of their stuff. Now, the problem was they took the commandments of men and made them equal to the Scripture also. And that's where the problem came in, so much of the problem. But they were the group, these were the folks who were just, they were in power religiously and, and, and they, were, they were sticklers and they hated the Romans being over them. That's going to be important for everything you're learning tonight. The Pharisees hated the Romans having power over them. They wanted the Jewish nation to be free of the Roman occupation and the Romans ruling over them. Then you have the Herodians. Man, you ever want to do a study in history, you start reading about the, the household of Herod at this time. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip II, Herod Philip I. Herod, Herod, uh, when Herod the Great died, three of his sons began ruling. and then These people would kill off their own family. I've told you about that. They were absolutely politically invested in everything and were about the nastiest conniving people you ever want, want to get into. In fact... Herodias, the one lady who was in, uh, not lady, woman involved in all this, she's the one who, had, uh, who wanted to have John the Baptist's head cut off. That's how his head cut off. She had her daughter dancing around all lewd in front of a bunch of men. And the king says, I'll give you whatever you want, up to half the kingdom. So the daughter, who'd been taught wickedly by her mom to be dancing around in front of a bunch of men, she went. Uh, she, she went back to mom and said, hey, the king said I can have whatever I want up to half the kingdom. What should I ask for? Here's what her mom said. Say, give me John the Baptist's head. Came back. Put it in the church. And put, basically brought it on a platter. That's how wicked this group was. And you know what their main interest was? Roman power. They really knew how to capitalize on the Roman power and they very much played up to whoever the Caesar was at the time. And they would they were they were about Roman power. They wanted Roman rule. And they wanted they wanted the Roman domination to be there. And the Pharisees hated the Roman domination. And look at it, they come together to try to tempt Christ. There's lots of instances of that happening in, in history. People coming against the gospel who don't even they don't even get along with each other. But the Bible talks about that, that the rulers of the world come together against the Lord and against His Christ. And why do they do that? Because here's the basic thing that they both want. They, don't want. they don't want to admit that God has a right to tell them what to do. And so here they are and they come. Now look how they do it. Look in verse 14. And when they were come, they say unto Him, unto Jesus, Master. Now just imagine that. Master. Man, I wrote down a statement here. Hold on, I was, I was reading something earlier. It's an incredible statement. Hypocrisy, though ever so artfully managed, cannot be concealed from the Lord Jesus. Isn't that a great quotation? I hadn't put that in my hard drive yet, but I just wrote that down this afternoon. And it is, it is good stuff. Hypocrisy, no matter how artfully managed, cannot be concealed from the Lord Jesus. What a great statement. And boy, it's true. 
That includes our own. Look what they go and say. Let's, let's just read this whole verse and, and look how they're, they're absolutely uh, trying, to, trying to come at him like they think he's wonderful. And when they were come, by the way, why did it say they were come in verse 13? Talk to me. Catch him in his words. So were they coming to learn? No. Not at all. That's not right. When they were come, they said unto him, Master, we know that thou art true. Why don't you listen to him, bozo? And carest for no man. In other words, you're not afraid of anybody. You work with people very long. You worry when people put this big introduction into the question they want to ask you. Well, I know that you'll tell me. To, I don't, just get to it. Don't schmooze. Just get to the question. We know that thou art true and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Wow. Why did they come? Catch words. And so they're saying, we know you're a true teacher. We know you teach truth. We know you won't back down. You won't compromise. This is disgusting. So they come and do this, right? Look what they do. Now remember the two groups. One is you have the, who's the first one? The what? Pharisees. What did they think about the Romans being over the Israelites? Hated it. They didn't want them doing that. They said, we just want to be under our own. Then you have the other group or the who? Herodians, okay. What do they think about Roman rule? They're for it. They want more of it. They want more control with that, all right? Look at the question. Is it lawful? Now, they're referring back to the Jewish law to give tribute, which is paying taxes, to Caesar or not. Now here's the deal with this trap. If he says, no, we shouldn't give taxes to Caesar, the Herodians would go straight to the governor on that. And, by the way, they could get the Jewish, the common Jewish people stirred up against him because they could say, this fellow is causing us trouble with the Roman government. These kind of political devils We'll play both sides of it that fast. That fast. Nothing's changed on that. Huh. If, the, if Jesus would have said, um, we aren't going to pay any taxes, or if He said, if we are going to pay the taxes, then the Pharisees could go back to the Jewish people and say, He's saying we should be under Roman rule. It's really a sticky Question there. Look what Jesus does. Verse 15. They get it very specific in the question. Shall we give, and they're talking about paying their taxes, or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt you me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. I don't know if I can change in my pocket. I don't at all. But he said, bring me a penny, a coin, as they had. The coin of the realm, as they say. Then he goes on to ask a question you'll see there. Whose image and superscription is on it? You know who it was? Caesar. Now, hold on just a second, though. Look what he did. Just look how, how, how wise this is. Now, get to the statement he made. He just had the Jewish people, they just brought out and admitted that's, that's their coin that they use. 
In other words, the Pharisees who would say, we don't want Caesar over us, they are using the Roman coins. Their economy is based on the Roman system. And if you're going to use Caesar's coins, you're going to pay Caesar's taxes. But look what Jesus does. He asked him in verse 16, Whose is this image and superscription? And they send him Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render, which is give proper due or give to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They weren't ready for that. You know what he did with that, Matthew? He put it back in their lap and said, that's your responsibility. In fact, you're going to find out something he's going to teach him. And he really puts him on the spot and says, do you really know what you're supposed to give God? You're worried about what we're going to do with the penny. What are you doing with what belongs to God? And he puts it in there. So it's pretty, pretty interesting with that. Then let's see what happens next with this. By the way, what does it reveal? It reveals the hypocrisy of these people who came. It reveals the wisdom of our Savior. See, these questions reveal some things, don't they? In fact, it says the last part of verse 17, they marveled at Him. Then look in verse 18, okay? So the Pharisees and the Herodians are done. They come in with this big question. They go, we got Him. We got Him. He's done with this. And Jesus just says, bring me a penny. Whose is it? Caesar's. Give to Caesar's what's Caesar's. And give to God what's God's. Hmm. Now the next group comes. Look in verse 18. Look there with it and read into that a little bit. Who's this group? Sadducees, all right? Now, who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees are people who did not believe literally the Bible. They did not believe in the resurrection. The Bible teaches us this. And therefore, they did not believe in the spirit world either. So they did. In other words, the Sadducees believed when you were dead, you were dead. That was all. That was it. It was over. They didn't believe in resurrection. And by the way, you don't believe in resurrection. You're not saved. It's that simple. And the Bible teaches that. Man, if Christ be not risen, then you're yet in your sins. How much more clear can the, can the thing be here? And so what happens is the Sadducees come along. Now, the Sadducees are the liberals of the day. What we would identify as liberals, if you're talking in theological terms. And that conservative liberal, it's funny when you study history, that's flipped back and forth according to where you're at in what country. But what we would call today, the liberals of our day, okay, you go to a church and the pastor would get up and say, he would read part of the Bible, whatever Bible we may be reading, which is your first indication you've landed in the wrong nest. And he'll be, uh, he'll be reading along and he'll say, he'll read something and he goes, now that's an unfortunate translation. It should better have been written. He's trying to be a lord over your faith. We don't have a priesthood. You don't have any mediator except Jesus Christ Himself. I'm not a mediator for you. But some man gets up and does that, and that's what he says. If I got up and read this passage and said, that's an unfortunate translation, it should be translated this way. I just told you, don't trust that, trust me. Now, how can you not see through that smokescreen? And so, there are many a church will do that, or they may be liberals and just deny. Sure, I've been listening to the driest, deadest book you ever want to listen to in your life audiobook. 
Honest to goodness, it's weird though. And it's written by a British author. And when you get a dry British author, it's just, it's over. Game out, you know. And it's, it's bad. But there's some really interesting historical stuff in it. And he's talking about German rationalism and uh, higher criticism. I'm not going to go off on a tangent on this. Um, when it came in and started corrupting the Bible-believing and the, uh, the evangelistic churches, especially in England. It came over from the German universities in England and such. And the first thing that happened was they said that the miracles and the events in the Old Testament and the miracles in the New Testament were not real. They said they were myths that taught a moral teaching. Thereby trying to put the Bible on, on the level of something like Aesop's fables or something like that. Very wicked stuff. And uh, they began to do that. That's what the liberals do. That's what the Sadducees were like. They didn't believe what the Scripture said about things. So let's see what they do. Now, the Pharisees and Herodians, you remember them? What was their question? What was their question? Should we or should we not do what? Pay taxes, okay? Jesus deals with them. Now the liberals step up to the plate, all right? Verse 18, Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they ask him, saying, Master. Everybody's in on that, aren't they? Now, now look at this. This is, this is amazing. They don't believe what their Bible says, and yet they're going to come to him and ask him about what their Bible says. Master, Moses wrote unto us. So they're coming about a particular passage of Scripture, a particular teaching. <laughs> Master, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die... And leave his wife behind him and, have, and leave no children that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Which they were supposed to do in the Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, line because the Messiah was going to come and they were keeping the name of that family alive. Now hold on a second. I'm going to show you what to do because the tactic never changes. Though the content may. So they ask about a specific thing. <laughs> Look what they say. Now, there were seven brothers. <laughs> so they concoct this story. And the first took a wife and died and left no seed. He had no children with her. And the second took her and died neither. Left he any seed. And the third likewise. And the seven had her and the left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. Nothing changes. The Pharisees and Herodians come trying to trip him up on the technicality of the law and they don't want to know the truth. They're not interested in learning the truth. They're just trying to mess him up. And they think they can do it by technicality. The liberals do what liberals still do. They come up with the most cockamamie, outlandish example you can even think of. Nothing new about that. They invent these things. Well, what if? Man, I'm telling you. If you've got a lick of sense, this world is disturbing that we live in now. But that's what they do. They come up with a story. 
I've seen it over and over again. I'll tell you just about a minute's worth of this when I was on the wrong side of this. In the group, and where I heard the gospel first, where I got saved, and where I encountered some people who love the Lord. People who still love the Lord. See, I'm not... Some of, you know, some of my brethren are so Baptistly inclined, if that's a phrase, that they almost think you've got to be a Baptist to be a Christian. That's nonsense. I have to believe God's got a remnant. I don't have to yoke up with somebody to know they're my brother and sister in Christ. I can still love them. Amen. But I'll tell you when I was on the wrong side of this. I was in college. I was in Texas, uh, down in Houston, Texas, in college. I moved down there when I was 17. I started college then. And I was, I was in college, so very young, away from home. And I had a foreman by the name of Bill Lichty. Bill Lichty was a Baptist feller. Believed his Bible, tried to be a witness. I don't know, we kind of hit it off. He was an older fellow then, very old, probably in his 40s. <laughs> and seemed old at the time. I just turned 18. And we'd get in these debates. But I was going to take it down. I was a young theologue. You say, what's that? That's the thing they know more than what they do. And I was going to explain it away, man. I was ready to deliver him from his oppressive doctrine of once saved, always saved. I was going to set him free from that. Let him know that he couldn't be lost again. Isn't that good news? <laughs> and so I tried to talk to him about this. Now watch this a second. I asked him, I said, Bill, I said, how can you believe that? He just looked at me calmly. And I understand now with this little grin he had, he goes, how could you not? And you know what I began to do? Some of you know because you've been around those groups. I began to come up with stories, scenarios, but what if? And if what if this happened, you know? And what if that happened? I'm going to tell them when I heard and some will recognize it in this room. I was talking to somebody about eternal salvation. They said, yeah, but it's like someone throwing a life preserver off a boat. They may get you and pull you on the boat, but you can turn around and jump back in the ocean again. And I'm like, little problem. And they're like, what's that? I'm like, Jesus isn't a life preserver and we're not going on the boat. <laughs> Other than a couple of bad starting places, it should be good. And I would come up with the most cockamamie. And you know what that rascal did? Every cotton dick and dime, he'd start quoting scripture to me. Or he'd pull out a New Testament and start showing me what does this mean, eternal life? What does this mean? What? And I'm like, I'll get back to it. <laughs> These Sadducees, they're making up their stories. Well, you believe in resurrection? Well, Moses had written, and that, that man's supposed to marry his, his uh, uh, brother's wife if, if they didn't have any children and all that. And now seven of them married her, and they all kicked the bucket because that woman fixed poison mushrooms. <laughs> I added that. And now they all come about the grave. Who she belong to? We got it now. That's a real zinger right there. That's real stupid as what it was. Don't take my word for it. That's what Jesus indicated. Look at verse 24. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Do 
ye not therefore err, because you know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. He said, you don't even know what you're talking about. And I think that's hilarious because they came to him about a specific teaching in the Bible. He says, you know what your problem is? You don't know the Bible. A lot of people grab hold of one thing, try to prove something when they don't know a thing about the body of this book and how it fits together. Do you think the Word of God is so shallow? Do you think the wisdom of God is so light that you can just tiptoe your way through it, pick up your favorite little thing, and build an entire doctrine system out of it? It takes labor. It takes learning. It takes yieldedness to obey the Word of God for you to start growing in the maturity of the Word. Ah, it's treated so lightly. You don't have to be a scholar. You certainly don't have to be intellectual. But you've got to come to the Word of God the right way or you're just as blind as you can be. You'll miss it every time. Come up with the weirdest situations. That word air is interesting. It means to lead and to be led astray. To lead and to be led astray. He said, Do you not therefore err because you know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? Verse 25 for when they shall rise from the dead, notice he didn't say if, when, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are, what's the next word after are? As. as. Very important. I'm just going to touch on that for a second. They are as the angels which are in heaven. Well, I guess the Lord took them because He needed another angel. No, He didn't. And they didn't become one. Look up here now. You're not an angel now. And you're not going to be an angel then. Angels are a different creation. You don't turn into a dog when you die. You don't turn into a parakeet when you die. You don't turn into an angel when you die. Angels are created beings of God that are different than we are. Angels appear as men sometimes. It's how they communicate. But they become as angels. What's he talking about as the angels? Neither marrying or given in marriage. Marriage, the wonderful thing called marriage that God has designed, that He has allowed to be a picture, and it's supposed to be a picture of Christ and His church. It's supposed to be holy. It's supposed to be loving. This wonderful thing that God designed is for this world. Not for that. And so here's what he says with that. And as touching the dead, verse 26, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses? And by the way, he's going back, he said, I've never seen the book of Moses in the Bible that refers to any of the first five books. And when it says books of Moses, it deals with all the first five books because he was the human penman for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that's what that's referring to. Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush, the burning bush, you're familiar with that? In the bush, God spake unto him, saying, look at it, I am present tense. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. All those people had been dead a very long time. He is not the God of the dead, but of the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. He said, He's God of them because they have not ceased to exist. Just because the body had died. And He's their God now. And keeps them now. Isn't it comforting to know that we all know people who are in the comfort and care of the Lord? 
I know it used to be a scary thing for my sister at times and her health was never strong and she was helping so much with mom. And uh, my brother would stop by every day to make sure things were cared for at mom's house and try to be a help. Of course, I'm over here a couple hours away and we did what we could do on the financial way and helping and going over as we could. Made a lot of trips. My sister was the main caregiver took care of mom. But mom, uh, mom was very lucid most of the time. But every now and then with the illness, she would lose that. And there were certain things could kill my mom just so fast if they, if they messed it up in the hospital. I'm not talking about somebody not doing their job, but man, there were certain things my mom could not get near. And if my sister could not be there to protect, well, it scared her to death. It scared all of us to death, to tell you the truth. My mom was, for a short time, we pulled her right out of it. She was in a little rehab place and they came in and the little gal that was coming in the room didn't read what she was given and was going to give my mom enough insulin it would have killed her on the spot. Just totally messed up. My, my sister physically stopped her. It was, it was amazing. Mom was so complex with so many things going on. You had to be very careful. And I tell you what, I felt different when if, if my sister, sometimes her diverticulitis or the different things with her sarcoid would act up and she was hospitalized while mom was hospitalized and she would call me, she'd be in tears, she'd say, nobody's there with mom and nobody's watching. Boy, that was scary for all of us in that little bit of time. Can I tell you what? Uh, I was glad Sandra said, I'm going to be there with her. Boy, all of us were like, man, why? Because she's, she's going to make sure. She's going to watch. Everything goes in. We don't just let, our whole family is where we don't just let somebody put medicine in. So we ask questions. We don't know what it is and that sort of thing. And by the way, we had really, really good success with, with most medical personnel. Really did. And it's funny, my, my sister and I were talking about that the other day. I said, sis, you ever think about how blessed we were with so many of the doctors? She goes, that's true. She goes, we were percentage-wise. She goes, but think about the other reason why. And I said, why is that? She said, we immediately fired anybody who seemed to be incompetent. We did. We'd say, you're done. We're done with somebody else. No, we're not playing games with you. And I'm not talking about they're trying to figure out a complex situation. Can't. I don't call that incompetence. I'm talking about they're not paying attention. We'll put up with it. And so there's that. Isn't it nice to know that there are those that are in the, in the hands and arms of Christ and this whole world can't get to them anymore? damage and we miss them sure but they're safe what a what a blessed thing that is and he talked about those things with him and uh then look in verse 28 final thing tonight you had first the the two groups were the pharisees and who else the herodians then you had the sadducees the liberal element comes along and uh they were trying to cause trouble and then verse 28 now you shift gears a little bit and one of the scribes i like that because remember it was it was the chief priest and the Pharisees and the scribes that had started the whole ruckus off when they came to Jesus about who his authority was and then Jesus asked them about John the Baptist and that went back and forth. And then they sent these other groups. But one of the scribes in that group, there was somebody operating differently. Thank God for that. Look what he said here. One of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together. So he was kind of standing back watching all this going on. By the way, scribes spent their whole life writing. That's what a scribe is. You inscribe something, you write on it, and they would write. Think about it. You had no way of duplicating print. You certainly didn't have a movable type or anything else at this time period. And so everything that was going was handwritten. What these men did, and they were very dedicated to it. I mean, it was an act of worship to them. All they did through their whole adult life was copy the Scripture, copy the Scripture. How well do you think you would know what it says if that's what you did? It's your full-time occupation all the time. So the scribes listening, 
And uh, he makes a statement there, and he, he heard them reasoning together, verse 28, and perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well, ask him. Now, he's not trying to trip him up. He's, he's going about different. And you'll see that by what Jesus, how Jesus responds to him. He asked him this question, which is the first commandment of all? Now, he's not trying to exclude commandments, but what he's saying first, not first numerically, but basically looking for what is the foundation on which everything else builds. Where do we start as a basic premise here? And he said, what is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, and here it is. Here's what Jesus said. The first of all commandments is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We only have one God. And I'll tell you, that's wonderful. And in that day and time, it was totally unique. Totally unique. I'll think about that sentence. It was unique. It was the other beliefs that were around there had multiple gods. So this is different than everything else. The Lord our God is one God. He's just one God. And, verse 30, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Wait a minute, he just introduced something else that was unknown. Because the relationship people had with their gods was one of fear and one of all this, that, and that. And he said, no. He said, we're to love our God. Well, that was new too. Love thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Boy, he put it out there clearly. And the second is like. In other words, the first one leads to the second one. Namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's none other commandments greater than these. In another place it's recorded that he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He said everything else comes from this. Can you handle something a little bit deep for a second? Can I give you something a little bit deep for a second? I read this just in the course of studying. I was studying here and I was studying some other things that were said. And I thought, this is a little deep, a little heavy for you. I want you, I want you to pay close attention to it. But I thought, man, this is so good. I want, I want the church to get it. It says that the great commandment of all, which is indeed inclusive of all, is that loving God with all our hearts. Where there is a commanding principle, where this, excuse me, is a commanding principle in the soul, there's a disposition to every other duty. In other words, if you have a principle that guides you, it will affect everything you do. Love is the leading affection of the soul. The love of God is the leading grace in the renewed soul. Where this is not, nothing else that is good is done or done aright or accepted or done long. Loving God with all our heart will effectually take us off from and arm us against all those things that are rivals with Him for the throne in our souls and will engage us to everything by which He may be honored and with which He may be pleased. And no commandment will be grievous where this principle commands and has the ascendance. Now here in Mark, our Savior prefixes this comment with the great doctrinal truth upon which it is built. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. If we firmly believe this, it will follow 
that we shall love Him with all our heart. He is Jehovah, who has all amiable perfections in Himself. He is our God, to whom we stand related and obliged. Therefore, we ought to love Him, to set our affections on Him, to let out our own desire toward Him, and take a delight in Him. He is one Lord. Therefore, He must be loved with our whole heart. He has the sole right to us, and therefore ought to have the sole possession of us. If He be one, our hearts must be one with Him. And since there is no God beside Him, no rival must be emitted with Him upon the throne of our soul. And that's a little bit of heavy writing, but what it points out is the fact when we actually do love God with our whole heart, the outflow of everything else that's good and right will come from that. As we view God, so we will interact with the rest of life. And these things are taught. And so look here again at the Scripture. Let me show you this. Verse 32. So look at the scribe's reaction to this. The scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, there's none other but He, and to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding. Don't you like that, how the Bible explains what it means by mind, by putting that in there? And with all the soul, with all thy strength, and to love his neighbors himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Remember how we learned in the Bible to obey is better than sacrifice? And here it says to love God is more important than all the sacrifices. What is that? A whole, a, a whole burnt offering is an offering that was given completely to God for God's pleasure and for God's, uh, God's worship. And he said it's more important than all those. He said it is more important than all of this. And then look what it says in, the, in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, in other words, he had some wisdom and prudence about it, he had seen the principle. Now he needs the person. When Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that dares ask him any question. Nobody else came to him or at him with that. But he said to the scribe, he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He said, you're seeing the principle. You're seeing the truth. Now you need the person. Because salvation is in the person of Jesus Christ. The questions reveal about the person asking the question. The questions were opportunity for Christ to be revealed in a perfect way. What they revealed was that hypocrisy is open before the eyes of God. We don't fool Him. What they reveal is there is truth and all the outlandish things that we can come up with in our imagination don't matter. Truth is what matters. What they reveal is for a person who will acknowledge who God is and go towards God, that God is more than willing to meet them and to open to them their understanding. A lot of good stuff there. Let me pray with you, all right? Father, thank You for Your people tonight and for Your Word. Lord, I pray You'll bless. May we love You with our whole heart, with our minds, with our souls, and with our strength. May it be uh, evidence in what we do in our day-by-day living, please. Thank You for 
showing your wisdom in these situations and answering these things the way you did. Thank you that we could learn from them tonight. Amen. Let's stand together.